morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. Good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. Today we're going to continue with our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. Turn with me over to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 9 and read verses 6 through 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 12. Subtitle of the sermon, Receiving and Distributing the Harvest. Receiving and Distributing the Harvest. Verse 6, Paul says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Verse 12. For the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Lord, help us as we study. Four things I'm going to concentrate on in this passage. One, foundational pillars and principles. Two, <clears throat> what it looks like to, to receive formidable grace. Three, how we, how we get to inherit a name that lasts forever, reputation that's stellar. And then four, how the Father responds. Let me give you the backdrop to this passage. The church in Jerusalem is going through a very, very difficult time, not theologically, but naturally. It's in a time of famine. People are on the verge of starvation. And Paul is using the influence he's got with the other churches in order to provide for the church of Jerusalem. He's taking up offerings in Galatia and Rome and in Corinth. Even Philippi, that was a very poor congregation, amazed Paul at their giving. And he said, out of their deep poverty, their liberality overwhelmed everybody else. That their giving overshadowed all the other churches. And so <clears throat> Paul was doing everything he could to try to encourage churches to give. Well, this passage is that encouragement. And in fact, chapter 8 also deals with this. And Paul is concluding it here in chapter 9. The problem with the church at Corinth is really the antithesis of what was going on at the church in Philippi. Corinth had resources. Philippi did not. And the resources that Corinth had, Paul encouraged in the first letter that he wrote to the church at Corinth in chapter 16. He said, set aside some resources right, right now. Put it aside. Take up offerings and put it aside so that when my people come to pick it up, they can receive it and take it to Jerusalem. Well, something happened between the, the first letter to the church at Corinth and the second, whereby Paul had to say, you know, the money you set aside, we're having a hard time finding it. Covetous seemed to have got into the offering. And that which they had apportioned for another purpose, they had now taken for other things. Whether it's for themselves, we don't know. But we do know that the money that they had set aside was not as great as it should have been. 
And so Paul was trying to encourage them. Don't stop. You started really well. Don't quit. And he's using agrarian analogies in order to convey principles by which God blesses his people. And the, the, the principle is sowing and reaping. And then the response that, that God gives is wrapped up contextually in a passage that he quotes from the Old Testament. It's in Psalm 112. It's, Psalm 112 is about how God responds to the righteous man. It says, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty in the earth and the generation of the upright will be blessed. It says that he will make sure that light follows him even when darkness is around. I mean, the, the, the psalm, I don't have time to quote it, but the psalm is rich with meaning and blessing and encouragement for anybody who wants to do right. But down near verse 9, it says, He gives freely to the poor, his righteousness endures forever, and his horn is exalted in honor. Paul lifts that passage, quotes it here, in reference to the fact that God is the God who has always blessed the man who will give. Whether it's a thousand years ago when this psalm was written or now, God blesses the man who distributes and considers that which God gave him ultimately as the Lord's and now he must inquire of God what he needs to do with it. That though somebody works a job and you work 50 or 60 this week, I get that. And you get a paycheck. That money is not yours. I'm sorry, it's not. Because it belongs to the one who is your provider. And though you worked for it, I get it, and you earned it. He provided. He is the one who superintends over all of our provision. And if, we, if he wants to turn off the spigot, he can do so. But he chose not to last week, so you got paid. Now, the resources that he gives you are those which he wishes you to steward well. And so some of that money you can use for yourself. And if you want to buy a boat, go ahead. I ain't mad at you. Buy a boat. Take me out on it with you. I ain't mad at you. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, God distributes resources to those that he desires so that they can enjoy it. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the resources God has given. There's a lot wrong with not using the resources God has given in addition to distribute to others. A lot wrong with that because he hasn't just... He hasn't just given them to make you happy. He's looking at you as a partner with him that can help expand his kingdom in the earth and to provide for those who do not have. And if you do not partner with him after he has blessed you inordinately, inordinately, some of you don't, some of you can't resonate with that because you didn't say amen. Don't say it now. But listen to me. He has blessed you inordinately. Even if you are a mother of three on $35,000, single mama, he's blessed you inordinately because what we deserve is death. We haven't gotten what we deserve. If you believe what you deserve is more than what you got regarding finances or blessings, then you don't have a good understanding of your own humanity and what you really deserve. What we really deserve is death because we have rebelled against him and we have gone the, the wrong way a long time. And as a result of our rebellion, we shouldn't even be breathing. That we get to wake up every day is a real blessing from God. 
that we, that we have something in our cupboards is a blessing from God. Yet we consider it an entitlement. And so we get mad when we don't get more. Rather than giving thanks for what we do have. All of us have been blessed inordinately. Unusually. And in particular, God has provided for us. It, it's not just that he set out an umbrella of blessings and we happen to fall under it. He particularly provides for you. Every day, he mentions your name and says, I got to make sure resources go that direction. This is the way our God thinks about us. Why do I say that? Because Jesus said, not one sparrow falls to the ground without his notice. They don't toil, nor do they spin. The, 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 the grass of the field, he provides for them. The sparrows don't work and labor, yet they go ahead and, and find their provision every place because God particularly cares for every one of the sparrows. Every one of them. How much more valuable, he says in Matthew 6, for you. This is our God. He loves you like that. He loves you like that. And so when we talk about this passage, you can't get away from the fact that God has always had a tenor. His disposition has been to bless. That's the way he looks at humanity. He wants to bless them. And he wants to take those who particularly join with him in providing for those who don't have and, and advancing his kingdom. He says, I'm going to bless them even more. Because I care about what they're doing. And there are very few people about whom I can say that are giving so much. So since there are so few, I've got to divert an inordinate amount of resources to them. Because they are really helping me in the earth. So Paul sandwiches all of God's doing and our responsibility in this passage. With Psalm 112. He, he mentions the, 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 the agricultural principle of sowing and reaping. And, and there's one thing that is obvious here, but is rarely mentioned. He says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. But he doesn't give an option not to sow. You, see, if you're a Christian, you sow. You're supposed to plant, you're supposed to be a giver. There's no option not to sow. Either you do sow and you sow sparingly or you sow abundantly. But you, you do not not sow. I'm sorry all the English teachers out there. That double negative was bad, but it makes a point. You do not not sow. Because it's a poor reflection on your gratefulness for how God sowed into your life. He gave to you his son. He created the ultimate on-ramp into your life. And as a result, you now know him, can call him daddy, and got an eternal spot in glory. All your sins are forgiven. What is the appropriate way for us to give back? There is no option for you not to give. You either give a little or you give a lot. But if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. And if you sow abundantly, you'll reap abundantly. Now, every farmer knows this. I'm about to begin my garden again. I purpose in my heart to not complain to you, dear church. I'm just going to report. No complaining, just reporting. My garden's about 16 by 20. And when I sow in there, it's just a few seeds. Not big enough to feed all of South Riding. And I realize I'm going to reap a little bit, but it's enough to make my wife happy, and so I do it. 
I sow sparingly there, and I reap sparingly from the harvest. But I got another harvest in the house. And so it makes it all worth it. But if I had 600 acres, I might be able to provide for all of South Riding because I would sow abundantly there, and then for thereby I would reap abundantly. And these principles are true. They are immutable. You sow a lot, you will reap a lot. You sow a little, you will reap a little. And the sowing a lot doesn't necessarily mean amount, as in terms of millions or billions or hundreds of thousands. It's in respect to what you do have. It's proportionate sacrifice. And so for, for a mother of three who's making 30000 and trying to figure it out as a single mama how to make ends meet, sowing $10 into the building campaign could be more than your 1000 if you happen to earn 100000 Amen. They're sowing a lot. And they're going to reap a lot. God has these principles and they're going to work. But if you do it as unto him and you do it according to his prescription, he adds some stuff to it. It's not just the natural principle of you sowing a lot and then reaping a lot or sowing a little and reaping a little. God says, I'm going to add some of me to it. So that whatever you would have normally harvested breaks the bank, goes over the top. Everybody says, wow, what a bumper crop. How'd you get that much out of that field? I don't know. It's amazing, isn't it? I got it to overflowing. I I just sowed a a few seeds. And look what happened. And so you got to get these principles down. You got to sow. You have to sow. And this is why tithing is important. This is why offering on top of tithing is important. Tithing is, is, is a 10% amount of the resource that you have earned that comes straight to the kingdom. And tithing is one of those things that goes beyond the law. Anybody wants to say it's an Old Testament thing to pass away with the law, you're missing the whole point. The whole point. Abraham tithed, gave 10% just out of the goodness of his soul because he realized he could not have wrought the victory he had had not God helped him. And he said, I don't want to, to seem like this, I'm ungrateful or this thing was wrought by my own hand. I want to show God how grateful I am. As an expression, I'm going to give tangibly 10% of everything I've got to him. And he gave. And God said, in terms of the law, he said, that's so amazing. I'm going to codify it because most folk won't have an attitude like Abraham. Most folk have to be told to do it. Abram just, it just came from down here. And so the law just represented that which we were supposed to do anyway. That's all the law is. That which we are supposed to do anyway. 10% and then offerings above that. These are things that need to be a part of our life on a regular basis. But when we do it in a certain way, God does certain things. So the the next portion of this passage says, now, when you give, make sure that you don't do it begrudgingly. Make sure you don't come to church saying, oh, there's the offering time again. This church all about money. That's all they're about. I knew it. Every church just about money. I would give out a tip God at $5. Or by compulsion, feel made to give. You have a bad attitude in the first or the second. You just feel made to give. Don't do that. Now, having said that, 
If you give by either one of those motivations, we will still use your money. Yes, we will. Gladly receive it. Gladly. Not be mad at you at all. This attitude thing is between you and God. Not between you and me. So don't do it begrudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word there in the Greek is the word hilaros, where we get our word hilarious. This is why we intentionally have a moment of exhortation about the offering, to re-educate everybody who comes, to let everybody know it's not a tax. This isn't something we wish we didn't have to do. This is a moment to be encouraged about what God lets us do gives us the privilege to do, allows us to do. And we always have a moment to clap when the offering is said. It's time to receive our tithes and offering. We always have a moment where people clap, and I'm mad at some folks say, did she say something really neat up on stage? I mean, why is everybody clapping? No, we discipline our soul to not have a bad attitude at the offering. And we tell ourselves, we take the reins of our heart and we say, no, we're going to go toward the side of rejoicing because this is an opportunity for us to show God how grateful we are about how he's provided. And so we get happy about it. We've been looking forward to the offering. I couldn't wait till we got to this point. So that when Pastor Donnell and Jim stands up here and says, it's time to say, woo! Now, don't do that. I'm not telling you just to fall out on the floor and start laughing. What I am saying... Is to, is to let your soul be recalibrated as to what giving should be because God loves that attitude. He loves a cheerful giver, it says. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you if you aren't cheerful in your giving. He particularly has an unusual affection for those who do. Are you listening to me? Now, when you give like he says, when you sow, and then you come into the giving moment with a happy heart. Gosh, I can't wait. It's great I get to give because you have provided for me and I'm grateful for that. And now I get to give back. It's amazing. I wouldn't even have what I have to give had not you given it to me. So I'm really grateful to be able to disperse back as you have dispersed in my life. Yes, hallelujah. When you give like that. Paul then uses some language that most English teachers would just redline. Can you fix this? There's a different way to say this. No, but he wanted to say it just like this. And my God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in everything may abound in every good work. It's not a run-on sentence. It's just too many thoughts in one. But he's trying to convey with superlative language and inclusive language exactly how God predisposes himself to the person who gives like, we, like he's just said. And my God is able to make all grace, say all, all. not a smidgen. He's not trying to, to dole it out in, in portions. He says, my God is able to make all grace. And you know what grace is? Grace is that stuff that allows us the privilege of doing things we could never do on our own and becoming what we never could be on our own. Grace is unmerited favor to accomplish that which God uniquely desires you to do, but you cannot do unless he empowers you to do it. That's what grace is, i.e., by grace we are saved, saved. not by works that no man should boast, Romans 6. 
And so there's no way we could get saved on the basis of our good deeds. We could not commend ourselves to God as being good enough, worthy enough to be saved. He came all by himself and saved us by his grace. As a result of that grace, we are now empowered to have access to glory forever and ever. Empowered to live well here on the planet and have every one of our sins forgiven. That's what grace does. And when it comes to the giving, God says, I am able to make all grace abound to you so that you can reap the kind of harvest you never could have reaped had it just been all about you. The harvest gets greater. When he adds his grace to it, the harvest that you normally would have gotten multiplies. That natural reaping that you would have received now is more than you ever thought possible. My God is able to make all grace abound to you, meaning overflow to you, so that you being supplied in every way. Would anybody like to feel that way? You being supplied in every way may abound. Oh, here's, here's the interesting part. You being supplied in every way would be happy. That's not what it says. That you having all sufficiency in all things may abound in every good work. The reason God is trying to make his grace abound to you is not just to supply for your needs and to make you happy. It'll be a part of it, but that is not the primary purpose. He's doing it so that you can abound in every good work. This church has some good works we're doing. And right now, I even have to figure out which ones am I going to participate in. I would like to get to the point, and I'm working at it, where I can abound in every good work. Now, I'm a pastor. I don't, I'm never going to be rich. But I want to figure out how I can get a harvest outside of what this congregation provides for me so that I can abound in all the good works that come to my life. I don't ever, when a work is, is, is worthy and needful, I don't ever want to say no. This is where God is trying to take all of us. And may I say, I've been working this principle for 30 some odd years. I am closer to the fulfillment of it than when I started. Closer. I got three kids in college. I got a lot of needs. The entire state of Virginia is being supported. The educational system on my, my salary. I got a lot of needs. I'm not complaining. I'm happy about them. All my problems are good problems. Good problems. And when I see the money coming in, I, I say, I got tuition. I got life. I got mortgage. I got... But there's a chair. Nobody's, nobody's in that chair. I, we need more of these chairs so people can... So I say to myself, okay, Lord... I believe that you are going to allow me the privilege of dispersing resources because as I have given, you have given back to me for the express purpose of making sure that I can supply for all good works. So we see (laughs) that there is formidable grace that comes to us and brings us to another level in the harvest. Why? Because... He scattered abroad, and he gave gifts to the poor, and his recogni- recognition doesn't stop. 
His righteousness endures forever. You, there's, you, want, you want God to recognize you. The one question you never want to hear God ask when you get to glory is, who are you? That's not, you don't want to have to introduce yourself to God when you get to glory. You want to have him have already known you. And people think they can have great confidence in their relationship with God because they know him. You ask people, you know God? Oh, yeah, me and God tight. Me tight like this. God, me, God, me. That's... Oh, really? I'm glad, glad about that. That's good. That's good. But most of us, most of us know, know God like we know celebrities. We've seen them act. We, 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 we've seen their works. We know their name. We can recognize them when we see them. If RG3 walked down the street, you wouldn't even call him Mr. Griffith. You think you know him so well, you can actually call him RG3. Some of you say, Robert! Robert! I need to go, oh, that's Robert! Give me autograph, give me autograph, give me autograph. That's pretty much how we know God. We know what he's done. We've seen him. We know how he sounds. And, and because we can recognize him, we think that there's intimacy there. But if any of us showed up to Robert Griffin's house and knocked on the door, <laughs> would he let you in? I was um, in 1993, and Daryl Green's a friend of mine. He's in this church, and uh, I was his pastor. And he said, listen, after a game, I want you to come downstairs with your son. I'm going to let you in the locker room. And so came down in RFK, and I was with Joseph, my oldest. And I, there was a guy sitting in front of the door. And um, I said, listen, I'm, I'm Daryl Green's pastor. My name is Brett Fuller. Could, could I come in? He said, I can come in. He said, uh-huh. <laughs> I go, go, go stand over there. I said, I got it. I got it. Listen, <clears throat> if you could, just please go in and tell him that Brett Fuller is here and see what happens. He said, okay. So he went in, said, Brett Fuller's here. Daryl said, oh, yeah, please bring him in. Guy came back and said, I'm sorry, sir, you may go in. <laughs> My knowing Daryl, as well as I knew him, didn't gain me entrance. It was only when he said he knew me that I got access. The last thing you want when you get to glory, the last thing you want when you get to glory is God to say, who are you again? What's your name? You better make sure that he knows you. Because the aggregate wisdom and knowledge of humanity will only begin to scratch the surface of who God is because he is infinite. Please get to know him as best as you can. But don't brag about how much you know because you don't know nothing. He is infinite. What's most important is that he knows you. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, Matthew 7? Didn't we do miracles? Didn't we perform exorcisms and cast out devils? He said, I, yeah. But not many who say to me, Lord, Lord, are going to enter in the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. 
And, and you all may have done some things that were good, but you didn't do what was right. I'm not impressed with your, your ability to move in the miraculous. Just not impressed. Like I gave you the ability to do it, and you want me to be impressed that you're able to use the ability I gave you. That just doesn't make any sense. So depart from me, because even though you were able to preach and my people benefited, you committed adultery on a regular basis on your wife, and you stole from the church, and you didn't live in holiness and purity. You didn't do the basics that you were requiring everybody else to do. So depart from me, because I have no idea who you are. I can't figure you out at all. My son, Joseph, again, was seven. He came to me. It was my birthday, and it was the first moment he could have a cognitive time of realizing how to bless daddy on his birthday so mama and him went out and bought some gifts and daddy's from seven-year-olds get socks and underwear and so that's what I got and I was happy and he came to me and he was so excited because this was the first time he could give daddy something and he, when he got excited at seven he just licked his lips up <laughs> and so I got it opened it up oh boy I'm so happy I gave him a big hug and this was a moment and the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that moment and said you do this to me all the time I didn't know what God was saying I didn't know what it meant had my moment with my son, had some cake, went upstairs. I said, Lord, what was that? I don't know what that, what do you mean I do this to you? He said, yeah, whenever you go on a mission trip and come back, this is what you do to me. Is that good, God? You like it? Is that good? Here's an offering to you. You do that to me all the time? He said, the difference between what you do and what he did is that you understand I gave you the power to accomplish what you did. He has no idea that you gave him the money to buy your own gift. Now, if my son had come to me not just happy about giving me something, but had tried to say, you need to respect me because I gave you a gift. I need some privileges in this house, Dad. I ain't going to do no more dishes. I ain't taking out trash. Here, here's your gift. I just want you to know. You, you need to respect. We need to have a moment, son. This is what these guys were doing in Matthew 7. Look at what I've done. You have to let me in. I don't know who you are. You aren't the ones I raised. You're not, you're not the people I raised. Depart from me. You can't come in the kingdom. When, when you give like this, God says, I recognize you. Your name will live forever. Your righteousness will live beyond your, your days. Oh, what benefit. Forever remembrance. And the father's response. He says, now... He who, he who has the seed for the sower and bread for food, he who supplies both of these, if you give like this, he will multiply your seed for sowing <laughs> and increase the harvest of all of your right deeds so you got more food too. God will add so much grace to your harvest that you will have more than you need to provide for your own and you will not be tempted to eat the seed that is intended to be sowed. Yes. Oh, people get, oh, their ship comes in and all they do is just spend it on stuff. All their dreams, everything they desired. Again, I'm not mad at you if you go out and get a brand new house. Not mad if you get a new car. Not mad if you get a, a new boat. No, just make sure proportionately you are giving back to the kingdom. Because in that big check is seed to sow. That's what he's supplying, not just bread for food. And I know you might be hungry, but don't eat your seed for sowing. Or else you won't have a harvest tomorrow. 
This is he who supplies. This is how he supplies. He increases everything according to the natural way. He multiplies it. And here's a good principle. He multiplies the seed for sowing. It says, when you seek the kingdom, he adds things to you. Seek first the kingdom. And the disciples were concerned that if they sought the kingdom, how are they going to be provided for? I mean, I, I, I still got to pay the rent. Baby, baby needs shoes. I, I, what am I going to do here? He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. The father knows you need these things. You seek first the kingdom and I'll make sure all these things are added to you. So God provides for those who seek first the kingdom. But seeking the kingdom gets things added to you. Sowing into the kingdom gets things multiplied to you. So when you partner with God by sowing into the kingdom, not just seeking the kingdom, you move from addition to multiplication. Are you listening to me? He multiplies the seed for sowing and increases the harvest of your righteousness. So that, lastly, you will be enriched for all liberality. That's what he says. You will be enriched so you can give like never before. And there will be thanksgiving to God that overflows. The Lord will allow people who receive the distributions that you sow to say this, I thank God for you. All those orphans we're providing for in Africa, 70 in Kenya, another 90 in South Africa, they send us notes saying, we thank God for you because we'd be on the street or dead. Thanksgiving worship is going up from the people who receive the benefit. People in this congregation who can't, can't provide for their they, they, they get in trouble. Uh, evicted from their home or they can't pay their life bill or about to repossess their car. We got a benevolence fund that not only helps them individually with the immediate need, but then disciples them on how they can not get in this situation again. Even, it, it may not be that it was their fault, but circumstances came upon them. We help them understand how to deal with circumstances. We teach and train. Why? Because it's important for us to steward the resources God has given us. And we realize that folks out there desperately need them. And they then say, thank God for you, Grace Covenant. Worship happens when you give like this. And that's the intent. That the, that the nations, all the peoples, would worship him. Generous great Grace Covenant, continue to sow abundantly. And watch God allow you the privilege of building an on-ramp upon which he can bless your harvest in such a way that all you do is give more. Amen. Let's pray.